This interview with Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon was conducted in June of 2019. She's currently halfway through her Army Fellowship at Tufts University. Enjoy the episode. The thing with the ready forces, regardless of how we feel about whether or not it's implemented right or anything, it's there for a reason. It's being driven by a real threat, and it's something that we have to do as an Army, right? Yeah. So it's incumbent on, you know, me and my battalion command team and my peers to help us figure, you know, we got to figure out the best way to do this so that we preserve good soldiers in the force. Right. But when the call does come forward, those are the soldiers we take to war with us. Hi, and welcome to the One CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon, who is the uh, outgoing commander of the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion Airborne, which is a Civil Affairs Reserve component uh, unit based in Maryland, recently relocated to White Plains, Maryland, in the southern part of Maryland. Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon hails from Eden, New York, a town south of Buffalo. She attended the University of Pittsburgh and commissioned through ROTC in 2003 onto active duty in the Air Defense Artillery Branch. One of the first women accepted into Divisional Air Defense, she was assigned to the 1st Infantry Division as an Avenger platoon leader, deploying in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom II. Colonel Gannon's remaining time on active duty was spent as a headquarters battery commander at Fort Bliss, Texas, with appointment in Qatar, Kuwait, and as an action officer on the Joint Staff. In 2012, she left active duty and transitioned to the reserve component, earning her civil affairs qualification and serving as the commander of Delta Company, 450th Civil Affairs Battalion, Airborne. She has also served at the Civil Affairs Command level as a theater security cooperation planner and airborne operations officer prior to taking battalion command in 2017. Lieutenant Colonel Gannon has a master's degree in management and leadership from Webster University, and on the civilian side, she supports the Headquarters Department of the Army, G357, as a requirements and congressional analyst for air defense and field artillery portfolios. Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon, thank you, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. All right, good evening. Hey, thanks a lot, John, for having me. Absolutely. Now, ma'am, um, by the time this episode airs, uh, you will have completed your first command of a battalion in the Army Reserve, Civil Affairs Battalion. What would you say stands out from that experience? Wow. So, you know, that's actually a kind of a hard question as these two years have really been quite a ride and it's been great. I will honestly say best job I've ever had, hands down. I think what stands out most for me is that, you know, when you go into a battalion command, you head into it with this idea of where you are going to take the battalion. You spend a lot of time learning how to develop a vision, a philosophy, how to set goals. But what they don't tell you and what you really need to consider when you take a battalion is where is that battalion really going to take you? The 450th is a great battalion. It has a strong sense of identity. It has a very, very powerful legacy and a strong alumni. Understanding and respecting that legacy has really shaped the success of this unit. What was the legacy that you knew of? So you were a Delta Company commander, so you knew about it before you took command as the battalion commander. What was that experience like going from company to then battalion command in the same unit? Quite different than I expected. Um, when I came into the 450th off of the active component, um, I will tell you the 450th is unlike any unit I've ever served with, and I've served with great units. 
there is a this strong sense of identity. Maybe some of it's the, the paratrooper identity in them. And also, the unit has deployed multiple times through throughout the global war on terrorism. So the really strong connection. So when I came into Delta Company, I, you know, I kind of came in on the back end of that and really had to learn to understand this unit. And so I had time in Delta Company that was an awesome command. I would say it was almost harder than my active command because the reserves is all about learning how to motivate people to do things when you only see them two days a month. And, um, and that's really a great growth opportunity as a leader. But then coming back as a battalion commander, you know, it was, a, it was like looking at the unit with new eyes, right? So as a company commander, I had my small little company. And then coming back as a battalion, really seeing the breadth and the depth of capability across the formation was pretty awesome. And you said that you thought you were going to come into the battalion command and figure out how you were going to shape the battalion. So when you started, did you come on with, with an initial set of areas of focus or anything that you heard from the outgoing commander who transitioned over to you that, hey, this is the kind of stuff you need to focus on for training? So, you know, I came into the battalion at an interesting time. So when I arrived here, I was technically the fourth battalion commander acting or appointed in less than a year. Wow. And that was due to some out-of-cycle promotions and schools that the previous commander, who I should have officially replaced, had gone through. And this had caused some significant churn within the organization. Because I was fortunate to be familiar with the unit, so I heard that some of this sort of, uh, there was some trepidation for, great, here we go, here comes another commander, right? My initial focus was reestablishing that key leadership team and achieving some buy-in and trust. I knew there were great leaders here, but they were also very frustrated because it was constant change. And my focus coming in and, and what I've told the leaders is our job is to prepare to train soldiers to go to war, come home safely, and provide the best civil affairs capability to our supported commanders. And I wanted to ensure that these leaders knew they had the full support of the battalion command team to do just that. The capability was there. They needed to know they had that full support to get that done. Could you describe the unit for people listening? Who do you have in not only a, a civil affairs reserve battalion, but the mix of people that I think is pretty unique to have just outside the Washington, D.C. area? How many soldiers do you have? How many Department of the Army civilians are in the unit? And what are some of these amazing, I guess, day jobs, civilian expertise that comes to the table? That's an awesome question. So from a purely number standpoint, so the battalion sits currently at about 225 soldiers, which is actually overstrength. This battalion is chronically overstrength, and, and I'll talk more about that in a second. So those 225 soldiers, you have 12 active guard reserve uh, soldiers that support us, so they're the full-timers. And then you have, we currently have four VA civilians assigned. We have uh, three other vacancies that are in the process of getting filled. So this unit is authorized about 200, 203 is what we're authorized. So we chronically sit anywhere from 130 to 150% overstrength. And that, I would say, is the number one strength of this battalion is the amazing talent pool that it has. Nowhere else in the Army are you going to find over 200 people with such diverse and dynamic skill sets. We have soldiers of all ranks with multiple advanced degrees and professional experiences. I mean, these range from medical and law degrees to UN workers. Video, we have a video game tester in the S6 shop. We have soldiers that speak more than one language in all sorts of different languages. You won't see this replicated in an active duty unit. Um, 
I would offer John, you're an example of that incredible depth that the reserve component CA force brings to the fight with your time in the Peace Corps. The 450th, we probably attribute some of this fortune, I think, as you said, to the proximity to DC. But at the same time, there's something about this, this skill set and this mission that attracts people that have sort of these out of the box professional experiences. And that's what makes the reserve component civil affairs force so valuable is that we're out of the box from the traditional army. Would you think that's why your army continues to have the vast majority of the force in the reserve component? Oh, absolutely. And they need to stay with that because, I mean, I spent nine years on active duty and I didn't get anywhere close to being out of the box until I came into a civil affairs unit. Yeah. My, I had very good active duty experience, but I did not have this, I didn't have professional experiences that really stretched me or, or had me look other than sort of a traditional army way. So I guess that leads me, ma'am, into the next question about the strengths and weaknesses inherent to a reserve CA unit. Uh, some of the strengths you're talking about now are the civilian jobs that, that we bring to the table. What else do you see as strengths, and what are some of the weaknesses? Additional strengths that you have, you know, and it kind of goes to more towards your, your talent pool and the professional level that you find within the forces. You, you have a, a group of soldiers that is very dedicated reserve soldiers and i'll admit it i was one of those active duty soldiers that did not get what the reserves was and thought that they were just lazier than active duty because they only went twice a month what i didn't realize is that the commitment and time it takes to be a reserve soldier really pushes you above and beyond a certain level i mean these leaders put in time unpaid after hours and unasked because they know that that is what needs to get done and when you have people that are intrinsically that committed to their unit and to their team and to the mission, you can't help but be successful. I, I truly did not appreciate that until I became a reserve soldier myself and saw the work across all ranks that was getting done um, and, and, and how, how well it was being done. Yeah, and that's after coming home from a day job or, or in between breaks of a day job and working on Army stuff. Right, exactly, or in between coaching soccer games or putting kids in the tub. <laughs> yeah. You know, all different things that, you know, all these things that this components of life, and yet all of these soldiers have chosen to make space for, for this reserve duty. And I, I think that that can't be understated how incredible that really is. Yeah. And what would you say are some areas of weakness uh, that you always have to be working on for people who are in the reserve component? And, and for CA, is it any different from a normal reserve unit when you talk to other commanders? Yeah. So I think, you know, with, with all reserve units, Time is absolutely our biggest constraint. There just really isn't enough of it. Because in theory, you get 24 drill days a year plus two weeks of IDT, two, two weeks of AT, excuse me. Um, maybe you get some more based on schooling and stuff, but you really don't have a lot of time together. So trying to build a team in that little bit of time, especially when that time is broken up every month, it, it can be really challenging. The other thing that makes it challenge, and one of the biggest challenges I know that I have identified in my time that we continue to work on is if you don't have strict, tight administrative processes, which often get truncated and shorted when you're short on time, it impacts all other aspects of the talent, everything from getting the mission done to you know making sure soldiers' promotions and medical and all that stuff stays on top of it. You know That requires a very close coordination and integration and appreciation of the full-time unit staff, both the AGRs and the civilians. Right. That full-time staff carries the yeoman's work during the week to, to keep those processes alive. 
the TPU staff needs to be just as aware and integrated into that piece to make sure that those processes survive turnover and that soldiers and the mission are taken care of. On top of that, talking about time as a constraint, the 450th is one of just a few airborne units in the Army Reserve. So being a civil affairs unit, uh, and we'll talk about ready force later, what are the requirements of an airborne or of airborne soldiers and of the unit when planning for airborne operations and the month-to-month kind of stuff that has to go on? So, you know, first and foremost, for, for a listener that wouldn't know, you have to complete airborne school to be a parachutist. But the requirements, and what I think some people forget, is that the requirements to stay current as, an air, as a paid parachutist or as a jump master are identical to the requirements of active duty units. And I think that's a really important piece to pull out. So on top of all of the additional, you know, regular training requirements and all that stuff, we still need to maintain that currency so that soldiers get paid and so they stay current in airborne ops. However, being airborne attracts, you know, requires a certain level of physical and mental readiness, and then that attracts a certain type of soldier. So we get soldiers that put in this extra level of effort, you know, without even a thought. And then airborne operations inherently are, you know, they're dangerous operations, right? And they require a significant logistical lift, especially for a reserve unit, but even for an active unit. Um, your battalion jump master team, which is typically comprised of NCOs and junior officers, um, both full-timers and, and TPU, they put in a significant amount of time and planning, not only to maintain their currency, which is even more than a jumper, but they also to ensure the operations are conducted safely. So you really see this level of professionalism in those leaders that you're not really going to see in another unit. It's a, it, it makes a lot of sense to me why the Army would require the same mm-hmm. level of training for airborne operations with like active duty reserves. I mean, it's, yeah. Aside from a range, it's probably the most dangerous thing that we do. Right. I mean, we're, we are throwing people out of airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so absolutely. For a civil affairs unit, being an airborne unit, does it take away from any CA training that, that should be happening? Or is that time squeeze effective to be able to support, for example, the 82nd Airborne and, and the airborne units that we're told by Big Army we need to support? So, so it's an interesting piece, right? So, you know, anytime you add a requirement, it now competes with all the other requirements, right? So you have the airborne requirement on top of the civil affairs training requirement, and now you have to, you know, at all levels of leadership, sit there and balance it's the art of balancing and, I, you know, where do you go with that requirement? Do you, you know, how do you parse out enough time to ensure their civil affairs and their basic warrior task training is progressing as it should? And then also maintaining uh, the airborne currency and, and doing airborne ops. And so sometimes I think, honestly, a little bit of a time squeeze forces our leaders to be really creative in how they, how they use each of that time. Right. You know, I can remember as an active soldier wasting a whole lot of time because, to me, I had a lot of it. And I could be like, well, I'll just do it next week because I'll see these guys next week. These NCOs and officers, you know, that, you know, 36 to 48 hours that they have in front of their soldiers on the weekend, they have to master how they manage each and every minute of that time to yeah. maximize. So in some ways, I think it has forced them to become more creative and innovative in how they do it and how we resource it. And I think that additional work that the airborne airborne mission requires, one, it, it makes recruiting really easy for us in the 450th. Like I said, we're always over strength. I've never been under strength since I've been in this battalion. Yes. Uh, because it's a lot of extra work, 
but it's the best kind of extra work I think you can possibly do. It's an amazing thrill. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it, it kindles a sense of trust, you know, because you're trusting the guy that is throwing you out of the plane. Right. <laughs> and, and, a, and a sense of commitment, you know. I mean, there's a lot to be said that, you know, to be airborne is, is more than a skill. It, it's really, it, it is an identity. To be a paratrooper is, is, an, is an identity. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon of the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion Airborne. When we come back, we'll talk with Colonel Gannon about what it's like to be in a ready force unit, what it's like to read, lead a, a civil affairs battalion that is ready force uh, with CDC rotations and training. And we'll talk with her as well about looking back over her command time, what has changed in the battalion. Hello again, friends. John McElligot here. I want to tell you about another reason for supporting the show. 1CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Uh, your host, John McElligot, and we're speaking today with Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon of the 450th Civil Affairs Battalion, Airborne. Colonel Gannon, the 450th is a Ready Force unit. I think the name started out as Ready Force X. Um, it's, it's Ready Force. Could you describe for listeners what Ready Force means in the Army Reserve? Sure. So the Ready Force and that the name piece of the Ready Force came about in 2017, and this was a U.S. Army Reserve Command-driven mandate to have a certain percentage of the forces, reserve forces, at a certain state of readiness at any given time in order to react quickly if it needed, right? And this was driven by the current threat environment, which has been changing rapidly in the recent years from a more counterinsurgency Iraq-Afghanistan-centric threat to one of near-peer competitors in a great power competition. So there has been a significant shift and how Army in general, and I see this, you know, in my day job um, up in the HPDA staff, but on how we look at, you know, what do we need to be ready for and what will we need to be ready for? And so that was that was USARC's effort to make sure that they were aligned with big Army priorities to be ready at any time. So that was essentially big Army telling the Army Reserve to jump higher than they had before and, and Army Reserve saying, you know, how high and, and how often and how much do we need? Um, how has that been spread throughout the CA units? So how many CA units are ready force or traditional CA units? Yeah. So up until, and we're, we're still awaiting um, some finalized guidance for this next training year, right? So, but currently there are four CA battalions that have been designated as ready force battalions. You have the 450th in White Plains, the 412th in Ohio, the um, 425 in California and the 490th in Texas. Each one of those units was designated to have a full battalion ready, right? And because not all of us have, while we are overstrength, I don't have a full battalion of qualified soldiers because at any given time I have people going through the, the qualification pipeline. 
So what we have done is there have been soldiers that have been identified that, you know, if there were some sort of call forward, they would, you know, be shifted from another unit to support us. But you have those four battalions right now. Okay. And what have you seen as the impacts of ready force status on the battalion's level of training, the recruitment and retention that you've had, combat training center rotations, and the rest? <laughs> so, <laughs> great question. Sure, if you ask five people, you have five different answers. So, just to give you some background, so 450th was originally designated, and we were one of the later battalions, as a ready force battalion in September of 2017. And shortly thereafter, with less than six months, the team planned and trained to participate in the Bridge Combat Support Training Exercise 1803 out at Fort Knox, as well as a round of Operation Cold Steel at Fort McCoy. We brought 175 soldiers, all of our MTO equipment, and drug it all out to Fort Knox and up to Cold Steel uh, to participate in this validation exercise that uh, USARC had sponsored. It was a gigantic effort. Immediately following, we were alerted that in the following training year, this one that we're in right now, uh, the battalion was going to have four combat training center rotations, a mix of uh, JRTC and NTC, a command post exercise, and then on top of that, our facility move, which was originally supposed to happen, I think, back in 2015, was finally coming to fruition, and uh, we moved the facility this, this past February. So it has been one heck of a fast-paced two years. Wow. So your next job is going to be much easier compared to this. <laughs> I'm hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk about 24 days of training for, a, I guess, a traditional unit, has that increased for Ready Force? Are there more mutas uh, for training? Are there more CTC rotations that happen? The number of IDT or, or muta days, those stay the same, right? That your drilled, your traditional drill days. But we have seen a, a market increase in the number of AT days, annual training days, which that's what they used to go to CTC. It's typically 29. Or um, ADT, active duty for training, which we have used to support other missions in addition. And then we also, on top of this, these soldiers are also going to their professional military education qualification courses, they're going to jump master school, they're going to airborne school, so there's all these other things. So we have definitely seen a marked increase, I would say, um, on average, most DMOSQ qualified, so they have their duty MOS qualification soldiers in the battalion in the last two years, have averaged probably almost 50 to 60 days. Wow, total. okay. And do you think, when have you looked at any numbers to or talked with the XO and other staff to figure out what impact that's had? You know. For example, oh, yeah. being in the D.C. area, you've always been over strength, you've mentioned. You're an airborne unit, so that's a draw. But has this forced anyone to say, uh, thank you, but I need to take a knee, or this is this is not what I was signing up for? Or some people who said, yeah, this is absolutely the higher level of training that I want. Right. So, so I, I think I was one of all of those people at some point in these two years. Um, so... So, you know, this off-tempo has, has been, has had some, has, has had some both positive and adverse impacts on the battalion. But it's definitely challenged retention, I think, especially in our, in our NCO and our junior officer rank. And that's, that is because these are soldiers who are trying to balance their leadership positions within the reserves with their careers. So they're already trying to do that. And they're all, most of them are at the, in the age point in their careers where their careers are just starting to take off. They're, they're picking up higher level management positions. They're getting promotions, and they also happen to be in that time of life where they're also starting to have kids. 
Yeah. So there's a lot that we're asking these leaders to balance, and this increased op-temp will really force a lot of them to have a really hard look at, you know, how do I balance this, and what gives and what takes now? Because there's, I would argue, you never really balance it. You're just constantly assessing where you can take the most risk, right? Right. Um, so to mitigate this, we had to look and see where we could give some of these soldiers the opportunity to take a knee if that's what they needed because of a family or career thing. So we, we did it a couple different ways. We did some creative drilling schedules, you know, for issues along those lines. We moved them into different positions out of higher paced leadership positions into maybe a lower paced one. And then we also looked at transfers to lower op-tempo units, such as the training battalions and things like that, in order to help them achieve this balance because... Despite the fact that I want those people in my formation because they're the best people, I would prefer to keep them in the Army and give them an opportunity to sort of balance things out and let someone else step forward into the ready force piece. And, you know, and then they kind of get refreshed and then they come back into the force, one with better with a new skill set and then also re-energized. Right. Because I guess you certainly don't want to lose anyone who's 38 Alpha, 38 Bravo qualified because, you know, especially in certain ranks, we really, really need them in, in the reserve yep. for civil affairs mission to want them yep. to leave entirely. Yep, exactly. So you want to give them, you've you got to find a way. It's, it's easy as a commander to be sort of selfish about the numbers and say, well, if I lose these 38s, then, you know, I won't have my numbers and my metrics or whatever. But at the same time, when you look at the, the health of the Army and the health of the civil affairs force, you have to figure out a way to get that path forward. The thing with the ready force is, regardless of how we feel about whether or not it's implemented right or anything, it's there for a reason. It's being driven by a real threat, and it's something that we had to do as an army, right? Yeah. So it's incumbent on you know me and my battalion command team and my peers to help us figure. You know, we got to figure out the best way to do this so that we preserve good soldiers in the force. Right. But when the call does come forward, those are the soldiers we take to war with us. Ma'am, you your career has evolved through the Iraq and Afghan uh, Afghanistan wars, uh, OEF, OIF, uh, a lot of sustainability operations in countries. And now, as you, you talked about, we're shifting to near-peer threats. We're preparing for Russia and China and North Korea and other countries. Where do you think civil affairs and where do you think the 450th is sitting now, do you think that the mindsets have been shifted? Do you think that the training scenarios have, have been tailored more toward the current threats that we face? So as far as, you know, the mindset of the unit in general, I think is, is, is shifting towards that eye on, on readiness and, and training the best. I've never had anyone in this unit ever tell me that they didn't want to train hard. If they just wanted me to get out of their way so they could train. So <laughs> that's never, ever been the issue. I think that the, you know, us understanding what this change means, I think we as a force are still trying to wrap our heads around that. Um, I just recently went out to visit Alpha and Delta Company at NTC and JRTC, respectively, in April. And the scenarios out there are focused on this, you know, force-on-force, near-peer threat scenario. However, I think we're still struggling when we build the scenarios on how how to build in those transition tasks that civil affairs is so critical to, so critical to into the scenario so that we're really practicing, you know, as we integrate into that brigade combat team, we're practicing, you know, we're really helping that brigade commander understand that at the, as he comes to the end of phase three, here's how he sets the, he, she sets the conditions moving into phase four 
so that the war eventually ends. <laughs> right. You know, so I don't think we've nailed it yet, but from the discussions with the OCTs at both locations, that everybody is working towards that goal, and I think it's, it's definitely a mindset that's got to occur across the Army. Yeah, absolutely. And I experienced uh, with Alpha Company, my experience, which was generally positive, I think the the tank commander, his staff, and many others really understood CA and PSYOP and um, yep. information operations and how to take advantage. You know, there was a sales yep. job that, that we had to make, but it was made easier because the people had that experience, whereas yep. other teams struggled and, and never really made it because they were never, they tried and tried and tried. Uh, to insert themselves and, and make their capabilities known, but people just didn't care. So it's it's a sales job, I yeah. guess, but it's also, hey, you know, who are you supporting and, and do they accept your recommendations? Right, and it, it's it's and it, part of it is, you know, to the you know for the maneuver unit, they only have to pay attention to it as much as they have to pay attention to it. So when you go out to like a combat training center rotation, they know the war ends at the end of phase three. So, you know, the, the event is going to end, you know, there, there's nothing that drives them to really push into that phase four discussion. And I think that's somewhere, you know, within the training centers, if we can help maybe drive that as they build, you know, you only have so much time in the box, right? So help build that into for the maneuver commander so that he is also thinking out to phase four more. Right now, nothing I really drives him to, him to do that because they know that the exercise kind of ends at that point. Yeah. Ma'am, we started this conversation with uh, what stood out from your experience as battalion commander. And you had mentioned, uh, paraphrasing that it was, you thought you were going to come in and impact the battalion, but it was more about the battalion impacting you. So looking back over your command time, what do you think has changed the most in the battalion and, and how has it impacted you the most? Yeah. <laughs> because 
it's not OIS2 anymore. And and so to be willing and be open as a leader, that has been very impactful on me to make sure that I take that time to pause and not talk and listen to what is in that room and what capabilities and ideas and innovation is being offered. That's a great point. Ma'am, what's next for you in your CA career progression? I um, was selected for an Army War College Fellowship up at Tufts University, so I will take off for that um, this July. And so I'll be up there for a year, and then uh, after that I'm still working on the next assignment, but I'm hoping to take it into a joint planning assignment for civil affairs, to get out into the joint world as a civil affairs officer. That's great to hear. Well, best wishes to you, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sue Gannon, we want to thank you very much for being here on the 1CA podcast. All right. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate what you're doing for the community. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.